how much do you love Bean? Um, what sort of a question is that? A lot. <laughs> Have you ever thought about whether you would fight a wild animal for him specifically? Well, don't get many wild animals in Wellington, uh, so not often. Okay, I, I promise I'm going somewhere with this. I've just found a terrifying video from Australia. It is dog owner versus kangaroo. And we're not talking any kangaroo. This is the most muscly looking kangaroo that you will have ever seen. We'll pop a picture on our Instagram. So the kangaroo in this video has a tight grip on the dog owner's somewhat confused looking uh, dog. And the owner then tells the kangaroo, I'm going to punch your head and let my dog go. And presumably because the kangaroo doesn't speak English, he doesn't let the dog go. And they have a bit of a fist fight. I would take on a kangaroo to save Bean. I don't doubt that. I know you would. But while this situation ends happily, the dog escapes and the owner is actually fine. Have you seen this kangaroo? Yep. And you still think you'd win? Yep. Okay. Well, I think you've set yourself up there to be an Instagram poll. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Kia ora. This is Newsable. I'm Jess. And I'm Imogen. And this is what's worth talking about. Forget the Twilight Zone. Welcome to the Wait and See Zone 2023 Election Edition. There's a chance we could be waiting till Christmas for a new government. Hospitals in Gaza are running out of power and medication with no way to evacuate the sick and injured ahead of a predicted ground invasion. Do we finally have the answer to why we love food that's bad for us? Plus, we have a very important public service announcement. We need your help to find someone's lost wedding dress. We've got all that coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support. The election is over. The first day of gathering in Wellington is over. And now the reality of weeks of waiting and talking will be sinking in. The official results, when all the votes have been counted, including the specials, is over two weeks away. But that could just be the start. So to give some insight on how things are standing, we're joined by Massey's politics professor, Richard Shaw. Richard, what do we know about these special votes? Are they mostly from overseas? Are they people uh, who voted you know, near their work as opposed to in their neighbourhood? And how much could they change the lay of the land? What we know about the specials is that they will comprise, we think, about 20% of all of the votes cast. That's a lot. A lot will hinge on these, including the overall distribution of seats. As a proportion of all special votes, votes cast overseas are, is relatively small. In 2020, only about 15% of all special votes were cast by people who were overseas. In the main, people who are casting specials are people who either enrolled and voted on election day last Saturday, or they're people who voted outside of their electorate or they're people who used uh, Dictaphone to lodge their votes, or they're people who were overseas. So those are the four main categories. And in one particular respect, I think they matter. In the last six elections, the National Party has lost at least one seat on specials. Mm. In 2020 and in 2017, they lost two seats. So given how precariously things are balanced at the moment, they will absolutely have consequences for the, the the dynamics out of which the next government is formed. Now, I know, as you say, we could see a, a couple of shifts here and there after these specials are counted, but based on the result we do have right now, how much of a shake-up has there been in the political landscape? I'm, look, I'm talking about the likes of Te Pāti Māori and those Māori electorates, nationals really strong lead, but they don't also at the same time have that big proportion of the vote. 
mean, National does have a, a strong lead. Christopher Luxon will be the next Prime Minister. But in part, the strength of that lead is a function not of their performance, but of Labor's underperformance. I think it's worth pointing out that last uh, Saturday night on the provisionals, National share of the party vote is the lowest that it's been since 2005. In 2017, Bill English had 58 seats on election night. That fell to 56 after the specials, and that absolutely changed the dynamic of conversations with Winston Peters. National has done very well, certainly better than some of the later polls have indicated, but it's not a historic national victory. Tabati Māori, for me, were the story of the night for a couple of reasons. One, certainly because they doubled their representation, and they've shaken the institutional landscape up. The other reason why Tabati Māori really matter to this election is because apart from the very unfortunate death of the ACT Party candidate in Port Waikato, it's the Māori Party's performance in the Māori seats that has shaped this parliament. That's what's determined that it will be a parliament of at least 122 the difference between the Labour and Māori and Māori Party candidates in two of those remaining seats is quite close. It's entirely conceivable that once the specials are counted, or if there's a recount, and that may well occur, if so, we won't know until November the 9th, <laughs> that the parliament becomes even bigger. And if it's a 123-member parliament, then the threshold for forming a government climbs accordingly. Now, look, you brought up New Zealand first. I'll have that on the record, not me, because it is inevitable that Winston Peters will be in the mix. How do you see that playing out? <laughs> How do I I'm have... throwing it to you. Oh, yeah. it's, it's up to you, Richard. You tell us. Okay. I, th- I think some history is worth recounting really briefly. Two times Winston Peters has put a party in government, and on both occasions, it's been a surprise. We know from Peters' history that he is going to drive a very hard bargain. He will take no prisoners. He's hugely experienced at this stuff. He has been around for a long time. The last time he put a national government back in office in 1996. Christopher Luxon was just three years into his career at Unilever. We hadn't even heard of him as CEO at Air New Zealand. And David Seymour was 13 years old. Will we get a government before Christmas? Does it really matter? We have a government. We have a caretaker government. We have a caretaker prime minister. It's not like we don't have a government. The constitutional arrangements in this country mean that Christopher Hopkins remains as the caretaker prime minister at the head of a caretaker government, which will not make major policy decisions other than on the advice of the likely incoming prime minister. But, do you know, is that Christopher Luxon? Does Winston Peters let him be that person while the coalition negotiations are going on? If Hopkins needs to talk to the government in waiting, it's really not clear. So we have a government. We have a government until the Governor General, Dame Cindy Kiro, is confident that on the basis of quantity and clarity, a party or group of parties enjoy the confidence of the House. I think what remains unclear is quite what that threshold will be and when we will know what it is. I strongly suspect we will have a government by Christmas. We may not, however, have a government by December the 21st, which is uh, when the opening of the first commissioner's opening of parliament takes place, even on the 22nd. We may or we may not. That's when the state opening of parliament takes place. There's a really strong political imperative to get that done. But Winston Peters will not be rushed. We know this. And I'm really interested that David Seymour is coming out swinging, talking about the need to get things in place. I'm not sure I would be advising Seymour to do that. This is just going to piss Winston Peters off and he is going to dig his heels in and he will take whatever time it takes to form a government. Richard Shaw, really appreciate your time and insight. Oh boy, lots to unpack. Thanks, Everton. 
We're still going to talk about how you can help someone find a lost wedding dress. And remember, if you do like what you hear and you like keeping up to date with the latest news and helping people find things, make sure you give us a like and a follow on your favourite podcast platform so that you never miss an episode. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on I, I, rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tad to you about gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, attack line there. No, that, I what, think Chris, that it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. Yeah, yeah I'm not worried about it at all. That's Nothing if in there. That sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, we're, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts. The situation in Gaza is continuing to deteriorate and as the anticipated ground invasion looms, hospitals in Gaza City have said they have no way to evacuate thousands of sick and injured patients. The blockade means hospitals are running out of fuel and medication. Dr Natalie Thurtle worked as a medical coordinator in Gaza and the West Bank for two years via Doctors Without Borders and she was there the last time a major conflict broke out. She's based in Australia now but is still very connected to her former colleagues who are working in Gaza. Natalie, thank you so much for joining us on Usable today. Can you tell me a little bit about what support Doctors Without Borders is able to provide in a situation like this? So it's extremely challenging to provide support in the current context. Um, As you have alluded to, uh, there's an evacuation order in place for the north of Gaza. And so it's extremely unsafe for any medical personnel to move. The hospitals, uh, to my knowledge, in the north that are still functioning are extremely limited and um, they are completely full. We have provided uh, emergency stock to those hospitals and we do normally support those hospitals. Our staff are currently um, struggling to provide any care because of the lack of safety uh, options for them and the lack of very basic needs to provide any care such as electricity, water and medical supplies. So it's extremely difficult for the population of Gaza to access any meaningful care at the moment. Natalie, what are you hearing from the ground in terms of what's going on on, and what the greatest needs are right now? And also how many staff, uh, Doctors Without Borders team members are on the ground? So we currently still have 300 staff in Gaza, um, including our international staff. And it hasn't been possible to evacuate anyone. And MSF is calling for the possibility for our staff to be evacuated through through RASA. And so far, that hasn't been possible. I was in contact with some um, of my former colleagues. The basic need is water. They spent two hours searching for drinking water. So that's the level um, that we are at. There are no safe places for them to go. Um, so it's extremely difficult at the moment in Gaza for, for our staff and, and patients. So beyond just the, the giving of medical care, the basic, the basic functions of things like drinking water are things that doctors are having to focus on, is that right? Absolutely. Um, and so it's not really feasible for anyone to, to be cared for in an environment where there's, there's no water and no electricity. Natalie, Doctors Without Borders put out a very strong statement over the weekend calling on the Israeli authorities to show humanity. I was wondering if you could explain what Israel's counterattacks have meant for those in, in Gaza. Yeah, so Gaza is extremely densely populated. It's one of the most densely populated places on earth. And it's like a box. You cannot 
uh, exit Gaza. There's nowhere for people to go. There's, they can't um, leave Gaza. Um, and so it, it's not like there's a warning and then people can move somewhere. That's not possible um, given that this is a 45-kilometre-long strip of land with over 2 million people in it. Um, so, of course, civilians are going to be harmed um, and, you know, 50% of the population of Gaza is under 18. So these are predominantly children and, and a large proportion of women as well that are being killed and injured without access to medical care um, during this intense bombardment. So it is uh, inhumane um, and it is something that we are calling for an end to Absolutely. Um, this is a, a massive uh, decimation of, of an area of land um, and it's not proportionate and the civilian harm is absolutely enormous. And for your colleagues, do they even have a chance to process the emotional side of this or is it really kind of next job, next job for them? I think these particular colleagues are some of the strongest people I've ever had the privilege to work with and they've been through multiple, multiple wars and live under the occupation and perform their duties to an incredible level at normally under the occupation. Um, so they are very experienced in managing their own emotional trauma alongside trying to work and trying to look after their team. It's not possible to survive this amount of trauma um, without bearing the scars. Um, and certainly when I was there in 2021, the violence then was not as major as it is now, but certainly my colleagues were, were deeply affected and they are every time this happens. Natalie Thurtle, thank you so much for your time and for explaining all of that just now. Thank you. Okay, our next story is for those of us who spend too much of their day thinking about their next meal. If it's just me, that's fine, but, you know, this is still worth hearing. Scientists may have found an explanation for why fatty foods are so yum and so hard to resist. Jess... Tell me where I'm going wrong. I've been getting amongst the research here. And I was, look, I was willing to put my taste buds on the line and go down and get some fries and maybe some pizza, but unfortunately that wasn't necessary. All I had oh, to do was read. Boring. <sighs> Much less exciting. Yeah. So scientists from the University of Cambridge in the UK have found a brain region called the orbofrontal cortex, which I'm going to call the OFC for the rest of this, which was responsive to oily, smooth textures produced by fatty liquids on the surface of the mouth. So it could be that actually it's the texture of the food as much mm. as the taste which makes us like it so much. The team found that people with these OFCs that were more sensitive to texture seemed to eat more of the fat and they enjoyed it more and they sought it out more. So the good news here is that future research could look into designing foods to seem fattier through their texture and actually trick our brains because our brains won't realise that they're actually healthy for us. They'll just taste delicious. So it's going to be all gain, none of the pain. Better living, everyone. I think I I have a sensitive OFC. You're not alone. So, MO. 
thinks she could not only take on a kangaroo, but that she'd beat a kangaroo should Bean's life be involved. So you know where I'm going with this. Head to Instagram and we'll have a picture of this kangaroo. Oh my God, the six pack on this kangaroo. We want to know who you think would win. Imogen Wells or the biggest, muscliest kangaroo ever known to Newsable. Our Insta is NewsableNZ. Cannot wait to see the results of this one. (laughs) Emo versus kangaroo. Emo, Emo. (laughs) Emo would be smashed. Okay, we are totally using the platform we have here because there's something we need your help with. Well, actually, someone else needs your help with. So we're extending that request for help. Do I make any sense? Look, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'm sure there was some sense in there somewhere. The long and short of it is a woman in Wellington is on the hunt for her own wedding dress. It's not me. And I, I, it's not me wanting suggestions. It's not her wanting suggestions. It's her actual wedding dress. This is a yarn on stuff. A Wellington woman's wedding dress ended up getting taken to an op shop. There was a mix-up. It was loaned to a friend. It accidentally got donated. Yeah, so the story behind this is definitely worth reading, but the TLDR is, like Imo said, a mix-up has happened. But imagine, just imagine if Newsable was able to play a part in getting this dress back. Surely we can make this happen. And, of course, we aim to update you on the story once the wedding dress has been found, possibly by you. We are hopeful. Nay, I'm just going to say confident that it will be found. (laughs) Here is how it is described. White with a lace overlay, lace up back, scalloped bottom, that is a phrase funnier said out loud than written down, size 10, sweetheart neckline made by designer Maggie Sotero. I'm not too sure if I've got that pronunciation right. Hopefully someone else knows. On that note, that's newsable for today. I'm Imogen Wells. I'm Jessica McCarthy. Good luck, prospective wedding dress hunters. We can't wait to see what you can do. We will catch you on Wednesday. If you like this podcast... Please support our work. Visit stuff.co.nz slash support. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts.